Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education at Monash University and here we talk with researchers in and around the faculty about their current reading, writing and thinking. So welcome to another Meet the Education Researcher podcast. My name is Neil Selwyn. I work in the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. And the aim of these interviews is simple. We spend 15 minutes or so getting to know what researchers in and around the faculty are currently up to. So today I'm joined by Tom Hillman, an Associate Professor in the University of Gothenburg. Good afternoon, Tom. Good afternoon, Neil. Now, first off, before we get into projects and things that you're working, I'm just wondering what's the big idea that your research addresses? What are the big questions that you're interested in? The big thing I'm interested in at the moment is uh, networked learning, I would say. My kind of interest has evolved over time and now I realise that I'm quite interested in the phenomenon of collective intelligence and wisdom of the crowd, but not so much at the kind of at scale as I'm interested in like bridging what we know about these phenomena from scale down to the individual level and try to understand what the experiences of the individual is and what that relationship is with the systems they use, how the platforms that are used to assemble these knowledges and these collectives uh, work and, uh, and, and, kind of, and kind of break down these, uh, this phenomena in a, in a way that gives us something uh, more tangible we can work with than kind of like just a concept. So these are digital networks. Yeah. These are technology-based education, but as you say, looking both at scale, but also how things, I mean, that's a really interesting approach to take to education. I guess a lot of it's not school-based. So your background, I guess, is not in school teaching? No, it's not. Uh, my background is actually in industrial design. Uh, and I worked as a, a computer interaction designer and as an industrial designer doing things like furniture and sporting goods and lots of weird things. And then I, I actually worked um, designing uh, museum exhibits and uh, technologies for education and then got into graduate school that way, realizing that I actually knew nothing about learning or what people were doing. And I was designing for them and making it up as I went along. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, and that's where the kind of interest has uh, sort of emerged. And um, and so I do tend to look at a lot of out-of-school learning situations uh, on the internet, in museums. And partly I do that because I'm not sure school is actually the best place to look for learning. Mm. And I think maybe we can learn a lot of applicable things to formal schooling from um, so-called informal learning. So I wanted to go through some of those examples of informal learning. Now, you've done a few projects that I'm aware of that have really fascinated me. The first one is this citizen science. I mean, can you explain to us in a nutshell what that is and what sort of platforms and networks that was taking place? Yeah, so we had a we had a project studying uh, the phenomenon of citizen science and citizen social science, citizen natural science citizen humanities there's a large umbrella of these projects now and sort of traditionally citizen science has has been people counting birds in their backyard mm. or um, using buckets to test the water quality in their local stream but uh, in a recent decade or so uh, these online platforms have uh, sprung up and the kind of activity that people are involved in has changed and there's been a lot of these kind of classification projects where scientists have huge data sets that they need analyzed in some way. And they ask volunteers to log into platforms online and to uh, code them. So one of the big ones that we've looked at is something called Zooniverse, which is a platform for doing lots and lots of different kinds of citizen science projects. And in particular, it started with um, this galaxy classifying project. Okay. So people looked at pictures of galaxies and um, over time got more and more advanced and the people picked out whether there were spirals or circles or what shapes the galaxies were. And it oriented the scientists in which pictures they should be looking at. So presumably these members of the public identifying galaxies, are they all professional astronomers? I and mean, how on earth are people actually kind of engaging with this stuff? No, no, mostly they're not at all. And in fact, uh, 
interestingly, like uh, most of them that we've talked to as part of the project have no background even in amateur astronomy. Most of them were just interested by the fact that they got to see these pretty pictures in the beginning because they are quite beautiful pictures of galaxies quite often. And they develop this interest in astronomy over time. And so one of the things we've been doing is to study the discussion forums that go on around mm. these activities and to see what kind of knowledge is uh, these people develop over time kind of to the side of the main activity they're asked to do. Because the main activity they're asked to do is very, very simple. Mm. Generally speaking, these citizen science projects build on the fact that you don't really need a lot of background in order to do the the classification work uh, of deciding whether a, a galaxy is circular or oblong. Or. So what are people talking about on the discussion forums? Yeah, they're talking about all kinds of different things. So, And, that, and that's what's interesting is they're often they're using the, the pictures they're presented on the platform not to uh, go through and classify as many as they can quickly, but to stop and do their own analysis and, and discuss different scientific databases and scientific papers they can use to do analysis. And there's even examples of uh, volunteers using the material they find on the system to produce their own scientific articles mm. and get them published and things like that. Um, and uh, and with a colleague, Dick Kasparowski, I've recently published a paper um, looking at how they develop knowledge about the uh, imaging processes. So when the telescopes take these pictures and when the different uh, computerized computational processes process these images before they see them, oftentimes um, artifacts appear, little errors in the images. And you'll actually find quite a lot of discussion where people are uh, learning to identify these errors and break them down and, and learn to read what that tells them about the kind of instruments that have been used to produce the images. Um, and that's often a kind of gateway into to really kind of breaking down images in the way that a professional astronomer would do. So professional astronomers generally don't look at the visual images that much. They look at graphs and they look at different wavelengths and it's a much more complicated process in that way. And so this kind of looking at these errors in the images uh, is often a kind of gateway into um, uh, looking at different representations of the images and taking a much more analytical so approach. really powerful forms of informal learning and as you yeah. say, the system acting is a kind of bridge into these other forms of knowledge. Exactly, and it's a completely unexpected form of mm. informal learning. So it's not at all something planned by the project or it's not part of a an initiative that the scientists have had to kind of inform uh, the public that they're working with. It's this very much grassroots reuse, reassemblage re of, the, of the platform and, the, and what's available to them. Now, um, you've done another project on teachers' use of Facebook groups. And just for anyone listening, thinking that we're talking about a few hundred people here, I know this Facebook group was 18,000 of these people. It got up to about 18,000, I think, in the edits. When, when we actually assembled our corpus of data from the group, I think it was about 13,500 uh, users. We, we um, assembled three years of activity in this Facebook group um, uh, where teachers talked about a particular kind of pedagogical approach mm. and uh, looked at kind of like the patterns in their usage and then also the character of their discussions and did analysis of how the norms in the group functioned and how they were put in place and the kind of different footings that they took in the discussions and the kind of topics that they worked with. Now things. you're making this sound very straightforward, but I guess methodologically assembling data from 18,000 teachers on a Facebook group is quite tricky. So, it's I mean, not easy, no. How are you doing this? Well, and this is, I should say, this is pre-Cambridge Analytica that we collected that data. So <laughs> yeah. I'm not even sure you can do it in the same way we did. So, so I actually wrote code, uh, uh, computer uh, Python code, actually, in the Python programming language to query the Facebook database through what's called the application programming interface, the API, 
and uh, and download the information we wanted. Of course, we had permission from the group owner and we'd posted in the group to show that we were doing it. And uh, we encouraged members to uh, let us know if they didn't want to be part mm-hmm. of it. And uh, we deleted their data from the data set if they wanted to get out of the, uh, uh, be uh, removed from the project. But um, now it's a lot, a lot more difficult to get that kind of access to the, the Facebook database. So it's ethically tricky. You had to teach yourself to code. It's yeah. a difficult thing to do. I mean, all those caveats aside, what did you actually find out? What learning was taking place? Yeah, so we found out that uh, actually uh, a lot of the literature on these kind of social media groups the teachers have shows that it's quite superficial, that it's a lot of tips and tricks and sharing of apps and uh, this kind of thing. But we actually found that that if you dug a little deeper into these sort of seemingly superficial threads, you found a lot of um, exchange of pedagogical ideas. And it wasn't uncommon to have quite serious discussions. And uh, it, what we did find also, though, was that it was very uncommon to see anyone challenging the kind of norms of the group. Okay. So the kind of the pedagogical principle that this group was framed around, uh, which I think I can say was the flipped classroom. Anyone coming in and changing the flipped classroom uh, or challenging the flipped classroom as an approach really was was met with quite a strong response. There was mm. a very much an, an attention to maintaining cohesion in the group. There's no trolling or flaming. There or was people. very little trolling or flaming. And that's interesting because it's quite different when we study moderation in the group, for instance, uh, it was very different than uh, you would find on a kind of a Reddit group or a more general internet discussion forum uh, where a lot of the moderation uh, is actually policing behavior. Mm. Uh, in this kind of professional space, similar to how it is in the, um, in the citizen science projects, uh, because you have possibly, because you have this theming, this kind of professional or thematic orientation, most of the moderation work is actually to do with kind of supporting or guiding or mentoring or um, maintaining certain norms, but not in the kind of hard uh, policing bad behavior kind of way that you would expect with a lot of internet forums. So teachers behaving badly. I mean, 18,000 teachers all learning from this or participating? No, I, I mean, you, I'm not sure you could say that. I mean, our data shows that um, it's a core group of maybe 25 teachers are responsible for the really? vast majority. Yeah. So the data breaks down in the in the way that about half the uh, teachers in the group over the three-year period had either posted, commented, or liked something. So about half the members of the group, and it's a private group, so you have to apply to be a member um, to see the posts, about half of those members had never actively contributed to the bro- to the group in any way. Yeah, never clicked at all. No. And now you could construct that as them being lurkers. But on the other hand, um, they may be getting a lot out of reading the group. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. I mean, the third project which really kind of caught my attention was YouTube and informal learning. So how on earth is learning taking place on YouTube? Yeah, well, that's actually like it's a a massive area. I mean, and what we're specifically interested in there is instructional videos. Um, and instructional video has been something that's gone on uh, since the dawn of television. Mm. But the uh, availability of instructional video is enormous now. So if you, uh, I mean, the YouTube statistics are that there's a video, there's 300 hours of footage uploaded every second. And this is these are instructional videos uploaded by educational institutions? These are formal things? No, no, not at all. I mean, they're very rarely that. In fact, they're mostly people that are interested in a specific topic. Uh, and it's generally manual skills. So it's repairing your washing machine, putting on makeup, cutting your hair, doing all these kind of uh, more mundane tasks. But it's very much this uh, interesting space where people are not just demonstrating, but they're taking a, uh, an, a kind of pedagogical agency and 
and showing people how to do things, explaining them. So what sort of people are uploading videos about how to mend a washing machine or put makeup on? Who are the actual content creators? It's interesting. There's kind of two different types of creators, I would say. It's, uh, there's people um, that have a sort of interest in washing machine repair, perhaps. That's mm -hmm. their hobby. Yeah, and they're just showing people how to do it. Uh, and then there are people that are really trying to make a career of, uh, of doing instructional video. Because actually, if you look at instructional video statistics on YouTube, they're a relatively small proportion of the videos on YouTube, but they're the second largest, the second most viewed category. Really? So if you produce a successful instructional video, you generally get a lot of views on it, and then you get a lot of advertising revenue from that. So um, for instance, there's a, uh, one of the users we've tr been following their career uh, is a, a, a young woman that does makeup videos that went from being a student to all of a sudden doing about 4 million US a year in advertising revenue. It can be incredibly lucrative if, if you get a channel that really becomes popular. And so what type of learning is taking place? You can learn $4 million doing it, but I mean, what people are getting out of watching these things? Yeah, well, they're learning to put makeup on or they're learning <laughs> they're learning to get their washing machine again. Sometimes the videos can be sort of more address a more abstract topic, but most often it's a very mm. common concrete kind of activity. So the kind of learning whether you've actually learned something or not um, can be measured in whether you've fixed the and bike you, chain or whatever. Are you finding anything interesting out about learning? I mean, in terms of actually from the educational yeah, perspective. Well, we're finding quite a lot about how demonstration works, for instance, um, and the kind of sequentiality between telling someone to do something and and showing someone mm. to do something. And that's been quite interesting that there's something about demonstration and video that works well in that the, the video provides you with um, a kind of a specific case to work with, but the description that you give provides a kind of a general description of the kind of activity that's going on. So you have these kind of two levels with the visual and the audio working together. And that kind of provides a situation where in many cases you can learn something more than just the video you're yeah, looking yeah, yeah. at. So it's not yeah. just learning how to fix your washing machine. You also learn something about how electrical components work together because the person t telling you is sort of filling in aspects of that while they're working with the specific concrete case of that washing so machine. These are fascinating topics to be looking at in terms of education research. You've got millions of people online engaging in learning every day. I mean, it's a really fascinating approach. I'm just I'm interested what are you going to look at next? I mean, yeah. You've looked at these particular topics. What's on the horizon? Yeah, well, I'm really interested now in um, in kind of these large-scale educational uh, movements, which are sort of non-traditional in a sense, and, and moving away from kind of like MOOCs being the focus of, 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 of trying to understand um, education online. So I'm particularly interested in things like Stack Overflow, uh, where millions of people are learning to program together, mm. or there's a whole suite of Stack Exchange uh, platforms. Uh, and I'm interested in by the kind of platform mechanics that these kind of what these platforms afford and what they can teach us about um, learning in formal um, LMS systems or in classrooms even by looking at the way we get millions of people who have no extrinsic motivation perhaps to do the thing they're doing um, engaged and in doing something yeah that's absolutely fascinating I mean I just had a final question as an industrial designer <laughs> What do you actually make about education researchers? It's a very different industry to be it, working in. It is an incredibly different industry to be working in. Um, industrial designers are also um, a group that works quite conceptually sometimes, but it's generally a group that ends up having to produce a product at the end. Mm. Uh, and so you can't really get away with just problematizing things when you have to actually produce something. And uh, 
I think uh, we're quite limited in educational research at the moment in the kind of ways that we can represent our findings. And maybe educational researchers can learn something from designers in the sense that designers have tools and methods for reaching audiences in ways that are simple and elegant and can sometimes uh, cause people to think uh, but don't do it in a kind of heavy-handed way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think that's uh, something that can be brought to educational research. Yeah, but I mean, to end on a positive note, you are working as an education researcher. I mean, what is it that actually gets you out of bed every day? Why do you do this job? What do you enjoy? Yeah, because I'm re- I'm really really interested in in figuring out why and how people learn. Kind of this connection between between learning and 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 the German word Bildung. This this kind of like this lifelong pursuit of knowledge. Like, it's not just for me, but I'm interested in everybody else feeling that kind of like, it's kind of cliched, but that like love of learning. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's why I'm interested in these online spaces, because there's people, there's evidence of people with this kind of really self-motivated love of learning. And it works for them for some reason on these platforms. And uh, and I kind of want to know why. Yeah. Uh, I want to share. And which is a really valuable outcome. So, I mean, thanks ever so much for taking time to talk about these things. It's been really interesting talking to you. Thank you.